And this is Our American Stories, and you're listening to the iconic Leonard Skinner song, Sweet Home Alabama. And we're about to tell you the story of a man you probably know, but my goodness, there are parts of his story you surely don't, and we're going to tell it to you now. On the day of his funeral, the state came to a complete stop. Three churches in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, were filled to capacity for the service. Thousands of cars and trucks pulled off to the side of I-20 as the funeral procession moved to its final destination, Birmingham's Elmwood Cemetery. An estimated 250,000 Alabama residents lined the sides of the road or watched from overpasses on the 55-mile route from Tuscaloosa to Birmingham. Approximately 12% of Alabama's total state population at the time. Was it a former president they were honoring? A movie star or a rock star? Actually, it was someone far more important. Coach Paul Bear Bryant led the Crimson Tide football team to six national championships, and six of his Alabama teams were ranked number one nationally. And being number one in anything in the country is a big, big deal when you're from a state as small as Alabama when it comes to population, media power, and money. We're going to be talking to a lot of ex-athletes. We're going to be talking to former coaches who knew the man. And we're going to hear from one athlete right now, John Croyle, who played for coach back in the early 1970s and was at the funeral with so many of his teammates and former players. At the funeral, uh, all of us that had played, they had a roped-off area, and not one of us cried. That wasn't because of anything other. It's just even in his death, he still influenced us. And it was, you celebrate life. You don't cry that I'm gone. We were all sad because he had, uh, there's, there's three kinds of people you're going to meet. People that impress you, people that impact you, and people that inspire you. You know, and Coach Bryant obviously was impressive, and he impacted. But greatness, I, I mean, I wasn't any good, but Coach Bryant made me think I was. And that was his talent. Coach Bryant took ordinary and above-average athletes and molded them into great athletes. He wasn't just a coach, former USC coach John McKay said of Paul Bryant, who was born on September 11, 1913. He was the coach. In an episode of Law & Order, late actor and Tennessee Senator Fred Thompson appropriately opined, if not for Osama bin Laden... September 11th would only be remembered as Bear Bryant's birthday. In 1984, Ronald Reagan was touring around the country, campaigning for his next bid for the next four years. He took a campaign stop in Tuscaloosa. I have to leave soon, but I can't go without talking a minute about a 
great man that I was proud to call friend, Bear Bryant. He was, he was sort of the essential American. And you know, a few years back, I set a kind of a record here at the University of Alabama. I was here to go to a formal dinner where I was to be the after-dinner speaker. And Bear invited me to come out and visit practice out here, football practice. Well, the only way it could be worked out, the timing and all, was that I had to put the tucks on first. So there I was out in a practice field throwing a ball around with about 65 fellas, and I was in black tie. And, uh, Bear got quite a kick out of this, but he really started to laugh when it began to rain. <laughs> he was a leader, patriotic to the core, devoted to his players, and inspired by a winning spirit that wouldn't quit. And that's how he made legends out of ordinary people. He was a true American hero, and he was Alabama's own. And listen to the audience respond, because Reagan understood the impact Bear had on so many people who lived in this state, and who had gone through so much, by the way. His nickname was Bear, said Joe Namath, who played at Alabama for Bryant. Now imagine a guy that can carry the nickname Bear, and carry it, Bear Bryant did. The craggy-faced coach roamed the sidelines of Alabama in his houndstooth hat, for 25 years. But his legacy wasn't just about wins and losses. His real legacy was the impact he had on the thousands of athletes he coached, turning them from boys into men, and a whole bunch of them into future leaders. He developed great stars, no doubt, including such quarterbacks as Joe Namath, Kenny Stabler, Babe Perilli, Steve Sloan, and Richard Todd. More important, though, he turned 40 of those former players into head college coaches, including Jerry Claiborne, Howard Schnellenberger, Jackie Sherrill, Pat Dye, and Steve Sloan. Bryant was also instrumental in recruiting black athletes to Alabama. His first black player, Wilbur Jackson, a running back in 1971. In Bryant's final season in 1982, 54 of the 128 players at Alabama were black. Bryant had tried to recruit black players to Alabama earlier in his career, but the roadblocks he faced were insurmountable. He actually credited a black player from an opposing team with helping to break the color barrier at Alabama. Quote, to tell you the truth, it was Sam Cunningham that did more for integration at Alabama than anyone else, Bryant once told a reporter. He was a black running back from Southern Cal, Bryant continued. He came down here in the 1970s, and he ran all over my skinny little white boys, scored three touchdowns, and the rest was history. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about this life. We're going to hear from Bear Bryant's players, from so many of them, from some of the great ones, NFL Hall of Famers, and we're going to hear from Pat Williams, who's written over 80 books on leadership and wrote a great one on Bear Bryant. Bear Bryant's story, here on Our American Stories.
Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue with our This Day in History, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, if you've not had the opportunity to go there to study or don't know anyone who can or will, well, Hillsdale will come to you. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu to get their free and terrific online courses. And now we continue with the story of Bear Bryant, who died on this day in history in 1983. And now let's take it back to the beginning. Bryant was born on, as he liked to describe his place of birth, quote, a little piece of bottomland on the Morrow Creek, about seven miles south of Fordyce, Arkansas. By the way, so many of our favorite musicians have come from this piece of the earth, including a guy named Johnny Cash. He was the 11th of 12 children, three of whom died as infants. He remembered having an inferiority complex when he was young and often told people he wasn't very smart in school and was pretty lazy to boot. His family was dirt poor. Brian's father, Monroe, was a farmer while his mother, Ida May, tended to the family. Monroe became ill when Paul was a toddler, though, forcing his wife to run the farm. Work and chores were a fact of life for all of the kids. Bryant was a big boy, eventually growing to six feet four inches. He later recalled acquiring his nickname as a teenager in high school when he accepted a dare to wrestle the bear. Here's Bryant. It was outside the Lyric Theater. There was a poster out front with a picture of a bear, and a guy was offering a dollar a minute to anyone who would wrestle it. The guy who was supposed to wrestle the bear, well, he didn't show up. So they egged me on. They let me and my friends into the picture show for free, and I wrestled this scrawny little bear to the floor. I went around later to get my money, but the guy with the bear had flown the coop. All I got out of the whole damn thing was a nickname. As a tackle on the Fordyce High School football team, Bryant lived up to his nickname and walked away with All-State honors by the time he graduated and a scholarship to play at Alabama's flagship school, the University of Alabama. Crimson Tide won 23 games and lost only three when he was a starter. They went on to win a national championship in 1934 and defeated Stanford in the 1935 Rose Bowl. And it's there that Bryant learned about winning. Luckily for college football fans, Bryant didn't have the talent to play in the NFL. He turned to coaching instead, starting first as an assistant at Alabama and then as an assistant at Vanderbilt. After Pearl Harbor, Bryant joined the Navy, like so many men did in this country. And following his discharge in 1945, he went straight back to doing the only thing he knew how to do, coaching and preparing young men in battle on the gridiron. He had success at the University of Maryland, but soon found himself in the center of a controversy. It turns out he'd suspended a player for breaking training rules. And the school's president, well, he just decided to overrule Coach Bryant. Bryant immediately quit and took over the head coaching job at the University of Kentucky. It would be an iron law of his for the rest of his coaching career. No athlete, not even the stars, were above the rules. And the coach, not the other adults or kids, would always be in charge. Bryant stayed eight seasons at Kentucky, and his record was an impressive 60-23. and 23. However, conflicts with another great coach in Lexington, college basketball legend Adolph Rupp, well, that caused him to leave. The trouble, Bryant said, was that we were too much alike. 
we wanted basketball to be number one, and I wanted football to be number one. And in an environment like that, one of us had to go. It was Bryant's first training camp at Texas A&M that ensured his legacy as a taskmaster and disciplinarian. He wasted no time trying to reshape the Aggies program. His first preseason camp was held in Junction, Texas, in 100-degree heat. Bryant started with 111 players. There were only 35 left with 10 days into the scrimmage. Bryant started with 111 players, and only 35 were left after 10 days. The Aggies went 1-9 his first year in 1954, the only losing season of his career. But only two years later, they went 9-0-1 and won the Southwest Conference Championship. But Texas A&M didn't get invited to the Cotton Bowl because of a two-year ban imposed by the NCAA the previous year for rules violations. Finally, after bouncing around the South for more than a dozen years, Bryant got that call he'd always dreamed of. And he returned home to his alma mater. Quote, It was like when you're out in the field and you heard your mama calling you to dinner, Bryant explained, at the joy of returning to Alabama. And mama finally called. Alabama had won only four games in three years prior to Bryant's arrival, as dismal a record as they'd ever seen. Things were about to change, though. In Bryant's first season in 1958, the Tide won five games and lost four. By 1961, merely three years later, he received his first number one ranking nationally, going undefeated and beating Arkansas in the Sugar Bowl. How did he do it? What was the key to his success? It was his fierce discipline and work habits and the mental toughness he instilled in his players and his remarkable motivation skills. And most of all, getting guys to think and play like a team and to be the best they could possibly be. Here's Coach Bryant talking to a group of incoming freshmen. And this is just, well, it's the opposite of everything you've come to know about coaches motivating kids with screaming and yelling and be all you can be. No, this is very different and very smart. Now, here's why you can win on little things, and we'll be talking with you about little things as long as you're here, on little things and a little something extra. Now, let's just suppose that we say that that, uh, the maximum ability one can have is a hundred. That's the way we'll approach it. And let's say here I am, someone that that really only has, based on that hundred, a seventy-five percent or seventy-five ability. And here over here is someone that has eighty-five that I'm going to play against. Now it, it takes everyone, but this is just. For you, you as an individual. Now on Saturday, by virtue of the fact that you have paid the price, you've learned those lessons, you work on the little things, you are willing to give a little extra. Although you only have 75% ability, you play a little over your head, and we expect you to. Okay, you play, and you'll be an 85 player that day. Now, here's another man over here that's playing against you. Now, this could happen. It don't always happen. Then maybe he hasn't played the prize. Maybe he hasn't learned those lessons. Maybe he's not as dedicated as you are. And he doesn't play as well as he's supposed to play. 
and he falls off uh, 10%. Or he falls off 10 He only plays 75 And that's just to illustrate my point. Then you, because of your preparation and the things I'm trying to get across to you, you can beat him because you paid 85 And if we do that as a team, 11 at the time, Four years from now, why, you'll be walking out of here as a national champion. And I'll tell you this, I expect nothing less. No screaming, no yelling. He was in front of a blackboard. It was math almost. And you know, the guys were sitting there going, yeah, that's right. I can get to 75 to 85. I'm not intimidated by those guys. I'm going to work harder. And I'm going to sweat the small stuff. And by the way, Alabama teams never beat themselves. They didn't turn the ball over. They didn't do stupid stuff. And by the way, how many of us just do stupid stuff and ruin our own lives? So Bryant, in the end, well, the man was a teacher. He wasn't just a coach. He was a man who wasn't afraid to teach his boys lessons about life that would stick with them long after their playing years were behind them. And when we come back, we're going to hear from those boys that were turned into men by Bear Bryant. And I am telling you, when you listen to these guys, and some of them Hall of Famers, they're going to remember details from 30 and 40 years ago with laughter, with sadness. That's the influence this man had on the boys he coached, and he coached thousands. And that means the families got to know Bear, and the families and friends of the families. And in a small state like Alabama, that means Bear Bryant touched just about everybody. And it wasn't just the people of Alabama, folks. If you were around at the time, and even still to this day, Bear Bryant captivated the entire country. I was from New Jersey, and I was a kid, I was a teenager, and all those years I remember seeing Bear Bryant in the big national games on TV and thinking to myself, wow, what a man. Just the way he carried himself on the sidelines, all the stories, all the legends, all the wins, and my goodness, Joe Namath, Kenny Stabler, some of the greatest quarterbacks and teams of all time. When we come back, the story of Bear Bryant, his story here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we continue the life story of Paul Bear Bryant, the Alabama Crimson Tide coach and legend. And we had just been talking about Bear Bryant's attention to detail, that talk he gave the incoming freshman in front of a blackboard about how the little things matter, the details matter. I've always heard people say, Lee, don't sweat the small stuff. And I've always thought, what a stupid thing to tell somebody. You gotta sweat the small stuff because the small stuff adds up to big stuff. One of the other lessons that Coach Bryant taught over and over again is this. Winning isn't as important as following the rules. And Bryant was not afraid to enforce those rules, which were strict. And by the way, even if that meant benching his most famous players. An example, he benched future Hall of Famer Joe Namath for a minor rule infraction and even kept him on the sidelines during the Sugar Bowl. He also disciplined NFL Hall of Famers John Hanna and Kenny Stabler. He even benched Ray Perkins, the man who succeeded him as head coach at Alabama. Let's listen to Kenny Stabler, 
talking about what he learned from Coach Bryant when Coach Bryant put him on the sidelines. I was very capable of throwing away what turns out to be a fairly good career, you know, because of not conforming to Coach Bryant's rules. Uh, I was injured uh, my junior year. After my junior year, going into the spring of my senior year, injury was not practicing and, and basically was bored and uh, broke some training rules. And Coach Bryant suspended me. The toughest thing I ever had to do was go in and sit down with him when, I, when, he, when he did reinstate me. And I walked in his office and he looked like he weighed 400 pounds. I mean, he looked like a gorilla sitting back there, you know, and smoking those Chesterfields and growling from the, growling from the bottom of his shoes. And he said, Staber, you don't deserve to be on this team. And I said, well, I'm coming back out anyway. And he said, we'll see about that. He put me in my place and he wouldn't have started me no matter what because he was going to show me. And, and I'm glad he did. And that was Kenny Stabler 20 years earlier. This had happened to him. And here he was being interviewed and telling folks like it had happened yesterday. Coach put me in my place and didn't start me right away because he was going to show me. And I'm glad he did. By the way, this is true in all of our lives, folks. We try and get away with things because of our talents, because of our gifts. We violate rules. And it's hard for adults to put us in our place. That's our job as adults. My goodness, Coach... This is why we talk about the fact that everyone was afraid of him. They were afraid of him for good reason. They stepped out of line. They were sitting. Even if it was a Sugar Bowl game, as we just learned about Joe Namath's story. Bob Baumhauer, a five-time NFL Pro Bowler, told fellow players a story about how Coach Bryant altered the course of his life. By the way, go to YouTube and put on Baumhauer. That's B-A-U-M-H-O-W-E-R. And put Bryant and watch this story, because when he's telling it, he's telling it to about 30 ex-players who had gathered together in Tuscaloosa to just shoot the breeze and share their Coach Bryant stories. Let's take a listen to Bob Baumauer. I probably am as, as good example of, of somebody that came here as a, not just a boy. I wasn't a punk, but I, I, I definitely wasn't a man when I came here. Coach Griska and the, uh, off, uh, the, back then we had freshman teams. I was an offensive lineman as a freshman. I asked them to move me to defense and uh, for the spring, and they moved me to defense. I um, moved my way up and became the number two tackle, which meant I was a starter. Is back then, that's the way Coach Bryant uh, rated folks, I think, one, two, three, four at each position. And so I thought I had arrived, had a good spring game, and uh, didn't do much between spring and fall and came back and uh, uh, never forget it. Old Willie, old Willie Meadows gave me my basket and it wasn't brown back then it was orange or yellow or whatever the heck it was but i i was expecting to be a starter and i was like number 23 on the list and uh, what had happened is i had not prepared to come back uh i had not prepared properly to come back in great shape and uh, coach bryant knew it and after the third practice i said uh, hey i don't need this stuff i was a starter last spring and uh, i'll go i'll go anywhere and play and uh uh, what happened next really changed my life. Uh, I quit through my basket at Willie and, and walked out and got a phone call. That was during two days. Got a phone call that afternoon, and they said Coach Bryant wanted to see me in his office. And like like you, Barry, with your meeting and and Kenny, and I don't know how many of y'all had your meetings in Coach Bryant's office, but I sat, I, I uh, went up there, and he wanted my dad to go with me. So me and my, my father and myself went up there, and... Um, Long story short, he was very gracious to my dad, welcomed him in, looked at me and said, what the hell are you doing here? 
and I uh, really didn't know what to uh, what to say. But he basically pretty much put me on my heels. I was all ready for a speech like you were, Barry. And um, I said, well, I heard you want to talk to me. He said, well, I don't like talking to quitters, but since you're here, come on in, sit your butt down. And, um, yeah, but, but what happened in that meeting, y'all, uh, he changed my life because before I came to the University of Alabama, I didn't care about being the best. I didn't care about being part of a team. There was no commitment from me to be the best I could be for my teammates. And what Coach Bryant did in that meeting is went down 22, he went over, he went down the list of 22 players on what they had done to make themselves better from spring to fall. He knew every one of those guys had done. Bill Henderson had lost 40 pounds. This guy had done that. That guy had done that. And pretty much told me that I didn't deserve to be a starter. And by the end of that meeting, I begged for a chance to come back. And Coach Donahue, Coach Bryant said, Coach Donahue will probably kill you, but I'm going to give you a shot. Like uh, somebody else was saying, Coach Bryant would give you a second chance. He gave me a second chance. And, uh, you know, I went on to earn a starting position, went and played Miami, and and uh, everything I do today, every every success that I have, every win that I have, in my opinion, came from that meeting, and the fact that Coach Bryant cared enough about me, first of all, to talk to me, secondly, to turn the light on for me, so that I, in that meeting, start thinking like a man instead of a punk boy. And by goodness, do we need this more than ever, folks? I mean, think about what he just said. And by the way, he's tearing up in front of grown men. This happened to him almost 40 years ago per this event. 40 years. The guy's an NFL star, Hall of Famer. And he's remembering this one moment in his life when someone took him to the carpet in a loving way. And what did he say? Again, Bob Baumhauer saying, everything I do today, every success I have, every win I have, in my opinion, came from that single meeting and the fact that Coach Bryant cared enough about me to talk to me. And that's why we're celebrating Coach Bear Bryant here today, folks. And know this, he led by example. You want to talk about a guy who worked hard. He got up every day at 5 a.m., walked the rounds, looked at the film. A tireless worker who customarily rose and slept. Well, no one figured it out when. They don't know when he slept. He often supervised practice sessions from that tower overlooking two fields, one covered with grass, the other with artificial turf. It's not the will to win that matters. Everybody has that, said Coach Bryant to a reporter towards the end of his career. It's the will to prepare to win that matters. He and his players, well, they live those words. And when we come back, we're going to be hearing so much more, so much more from Bear Bryant's players, from Stedman Shealy, from John Hanna himself, and from Pat Williams. And Pat, by the way, has written more leadership books than anybody on this earth, I think, 80-plus. He's interviewed almost anybody who's ever led anything. And when we come back, more on the life of Bear Bryant, who died on this day in history in 1983.
happened in that meeting, y'all, uh, he changed my life because before I came to the University of Alabama, I didn't care about being the best. I didn't care about being part of a team. There was no commitment from me to be the best I could be for my teammates. And again, you're listening to Bob Baumhauer, and we just couldn't help but play that again. Because, again, this is a NFL player, a former NFL player, a star of stars. That's how hard it is to get into the NFL. And the area is recounting that moment in his life that Bear Bryant changed his life. And by the way, the key part of that sentence is there was no commitment for me to be the best I could be for my teammates. And when Bryant was benching these stars, what he was really doing was teaching them a lesson. Because all these guys are now looking at Joe Namath sitting there and looking at Baumauer sitting on the bench, and they're looking at him going, you selfish jerk. We're working hard. You're better than us, and you don't want to work hard too? And so those guys sitting on the bench had to watch their teammates look at them and judge them. And it's a terrible feeling to disappoint your teammates. And Bryant would exploit that and lift a guy up. And he wasn't afraid of his stars. He wasn't afraid of anybody. As we learned earlier, not even a college president who overruled him. If you remember, when that college president overruled him on benching a player, what did Bear Bryant do? He quit. He just quit. How many coaches do that today, folks, or people at, uh, at, at business or anything else have that kind of standard of care for their people and themselves? So let's return back to Bear Bryant and his story. Bryant was also a remarkable motivator. And he did not do it through screaming and yelling or loud speeches. As we saw earlier in that instructional talk he gave to freshmen about the 75% and the 85% and just being a little better than you can be. And if all the guys on the team can be a little better, oh my goodness, how much better a team can be. He did it through those kind of quiet speeches, like the one which you're about to hear, the Jack Rutledge, again, a guy 30 years removed from playing for Bryant, tells to a bunch of former players around a round table, and Rutledge, by the way, is doing his best Bear Bryant impersonation when telling this story. Talking about Coach Bryant being a motivator, and he wanted to win against Tennessee for so many coaches. He, had to, he, you know, he wanted to win all, but he, he liked to win against Tennessee. And he, it is, a lot of his talks over the years were a lot of the same, even though they were different in everything he said. But I remember when, the, when the, uh, uh, Conscious Holloway was a senior, Steve Bechea was our fullback, and he made the last play right to the very end of the game. We came behind and won. But see, it's like we talked about. Coach Brown started that game. He said, today we become one. If you don't feel that way, you don't belong here. When Steve runs, we run. When John blocks, we block. Now remember this. The game is over. You come back in the shower. You walk by the mirror. And only you and the man in that mirror knows if you did the best you could. You walk out of the dressing room. You see your girlfriend. You hug your mama. And you reach out. You touch your daddy's hand, and only you and the man knows if you did the best you could. And again, that's Jack Rutledge, and listen to him. And by the way, you couldn't hear a pin drop in that room. Everybody's leaning in because they all remember 
that moment where Bear Bryant's talking to him like that. And it's not the rah-rah stuff you're used to from the television and movie versions of coaching. And again, Jack Rutledge, well, he not only led his team to a championship, a national championship as a quarterback in Alabama, he went on to go and play on the NFL and have a very successful business career. And here he is reciting a speech that was given to him when he was a teenager. And then, well, it's time to go to John Hanna. He played for Bear Bryant, and he also went on to play for the New England Patriots and to get inducted into the Hall of Fame. This is as good a lineman as ever played in history. And here's John Hanna talking about what Bear Bryant had, and that is he had this, well, this towering ability to command respect and fear at the same time. Let's take a listen to John Hanna talking to a bunch of former Alabama players. Yeah, well, we practiced, Mal was assistant coach. We always said you could tell an assistant coach at Alabama because there one eye was on the field one eye was on the time. <laughs> you know, we, you know, we were practicing one day and Coach Bryant fell asleep in the tower and we kept scratching prep practice and finally the horn fell off his leg and it made a sound. He woke up and said, take it in. We was going in, Musso looked at me and says, damn, I'm glad he wasn't dead would never got off that <laughs> And everybody was laughing because that's how afraid of Coach Bryant they were. He falls asleep up on the tower. They keep running their drills, waiting for the boys to be called in, and they won't stop the drills, and they won't interfere, and they're waiting for Bryant to wake up. And only when Bryant wakes up and calls him in do they come in. And by the way, did you hear the way those guys exploded with laughter? They were all laughing because they'd gone through this combat experience together through this suffering together that made them all better and made them all men. By the way, John Coyle, we hear from right here. And he played again for Bear in the early 1970s. And here's what he had to say about fear and respect. You never respect something until you first fear it. And the respect he has is because we feared him. And I think great leadership has that characteristic, not fear of physicalness, but the fear of you never want to disappoint that person you respect. And that's so true. You never want to disappoint that person you so respect. And we've all had that kind of person in our lives. And I want to close out with a couple of stories now from Pat Williams, who wrote, I think, one of the best books on Bear Bryant called Bear Bryant on Leadership. And Pat, by the way, is the co-founder of the Orlando Magic and a guy who's written over 80 books on the subject of leadership. And here's a story towards the close of the book by a coaching legend, Grant Taff. And it goes like this, quote, In early January of 1983, Coach Bryant attended our National Coaches Convention at the Biltmore Hotel in L.A. After the awards luncheon, I was sitting alone at a table and looking over my notes for an afternoon presentation. Bryant came over and sat down next to me with an intense look on his face, and he said, Grant, I want to tell you something. I want to tell you what I'd do different if I could do it all over again. And all I thought was install the wishbone offense sooner, run another type of defense, treat your coaches and players a little different. And then he said to me, Grant, I would let everybody know that I am a Christian. I am one, and I didn't tell them. Three weeks later, Coach Bear Bryant died. I will never forget my last visit with him. And again, that's coaching legend Grant Taft. And that's how Pat Williams' book ended. 
I want to tell you one more story, and it comes from an early time where you could tell the foundation of Bryant's character formed way back at that Texas A&M gig he had for a short time. In a 1991 interview with former Tuscaloosa News sports editor Al Browning, Gene Stallings recalled a motivational story from 1954, again reading from Pat Williams' book. And that was Bryant's first season at Texas A&M. And here's Stallings. After our training camp, we play our first game and lose to Texas Tech 41-9. The following Monday when we go into practice, all of our game gear was in our lockers which was unusual because we didn't normally put on game gear on Mondays. The manager comes running around and says, Coach Bryant said, put on your gear game and go out on Kyle Field. Well, you didn't practice on Kyle Field. That's where you played. So we put on our game gear, and like a bunch of little sheep, we all go out there. Coach Bryant's out there singing, Jesus loves me. And I said, Lord, we are in trouble now. He calls us up without loosening up or stretching or anything, he said. The ball's right there. We're going to take up right where we left off Saturday night. Now that was the world's worst and toughest practice. But let me tell you this. We didn't get beat 41-9 to anymore. Bear Bryant was married to his college sweetheart, Mary Harmon Black. She had been a campus beauty queen when he played football at Alabama. The couple had two children, Paul William Jr. and May Martin Tyson, and four grandchildren. Bear Bryant died of a heart attack only 37 days after retiring as head coach at his beloved alma mater. But his legacy lives on, and not just in the stadium that bears his name in Tuscaloosa, or the statue of him that stands in the front of that stadium. He lives on in the hearts of all the young men he coached, who are now grown men, And by the way, again, you heard them from the famous Hall of Famers right down to writers, sports writers, and ordinary citizens who lined up to watch his funeral. Again, 12% of the entire state of Alabama lined up along the highways and bypasses on that trek, that 55-mile trek from Tuscaloosa to Birmingham. Bear Bryant changed all those people's lives because he challenged all of them to be the best they could be to be the best players they could be, but much more important, to be the best men they could be. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Bear Bryant's story.
This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our special series, Life Lessons from Dr. Bob. Dr. Robert Shillman doesn't go by his formal name. I didn't want to be called Dr. Shillman. It's, it sounded to me too pretentious. So he goes by just Dr. Bob. I have a, uh, a sort of comedic streak about me. An unusual name to call someone. But Dr. Bob isn't your ordinary guy. I'd like to do things in a funny, different way. A memorable way. With only $86,000, he started this little company called Cognex that became the worldwide leader in machine vision systems. On the arm of the robot is mounted a Cognex vision system which looks out at the world and says that's where the windshields are, this is the one on top, and this is where you should pick it up. And after 36 years of cultivating a unique culture with over 1,400 employees, Dr. Bob's decided to share the life lessons that he's learned along the way. And today's lesson is titled, On Being Frank. I was uh, a manager of a floor of a dorm at a college in Boston, where I got to live for free in an apartment in exchange for work of making sure the kids didn't burn the place down. And there was a security guard at the elevator. His name was John. I won't say his last name, doesn't matter. And uh, we, as you wait for the elevator, as I wait for the elevator, I opened a conversation with him, got to know him a little bit better. Uh, we never went out for drinks or dinner or anything like that, but just uh, elevator conversation. And then one day I said to him, and I realized this guy had more capability than sitting at a desk and checking kids' IDs. And I said, John, you know, I think you could do more with your life than this. And 20 years later, I got a letter in the mail from John on stationery, on a corporate stationery. And he mentioned, he said, you may not remember, but of course I do remember. The comment that you made changed my life. No one ever said a positive thing like that, that I could do better than, than what I was doing. And your comment motivated me to go back to school to get a degree in accounting. And now I'm running a forensic accounting firm. And I just thought that you'd like to know. And I want to thank you for that. So it's very important to me when you see people doing exceptional work, to say something about that. You can change their day, their week, and in this case, their life, by just saying a pause, giving them direction or giving them a positive comment. By the way, I also don't hold back on giving negative comments. <laughs> if you get the bad service, you should make that clear. Maybe not to that person, but to that person's manager. Because less, these are lessons. You can help people by giving them inspirational comments, and you can help people by telling them that they did something wrong and why it was wrong and how to, to perform better. Recently, a friend of mine told me a story. He's a uh, friend from where, many years back, and unfortunately, he had prostate cancer, and he's been treated, hopefully successfully. But during part of these treatments, he went to the hospital, and he just related this story to me. They put a um, name tag on you at hospitals now to make sure there's no errors and they barcode and everything. And uh, he didn't check the uh, bracelet they put on him. 
And he went then to the next station where they were supposed to inject him with various chemicals or do some tests. And they read the name tag and it was incorrect. It was the incorrect name tag and label bracelet, right? Now, he told me when the service people asked him, well, who gave you that? We want to follow up. He says, no, no, be, be nice to them. Well, that's a mistake. That's a mistake. When someone makes an error, a, and that's a serious error, someone's life could have been, could have been affected in a very negative way. He could have been killed. If, if they didn't check his name tag and gave him the wrong medicine, he could have died. So I believe in, you know, it's nice, it's obviously better if you can give positive reinforcement when things happen, when you see an opportunity, but it's also very important to give people frank and honest assessments and to fire them if necessary, to fire people. Now my company, uh, we have a very good retention rate. We have many people have stayed with the company, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, and even now 30 years of the company because we're careful in hiring. But nevertheless, we're not perfect. And our rule of the company is if you hire someone that doesn't work out, you should fire them. Now, firing sounds cruel in some ways. Of course, nobody likes to fire someone and nobody likes to be fired. But think of it this way. I tell my managers in the company to think about that person who isn't working out. You are stealing years from their life by keeping them in a position where they're not doing a good job. And they probably know it, whether or not they don't know, whether or not they know it, you are stealing from them the opportunity of going somewhere else where they may be very, very effective and happy. So I, I see uh, terminating people or hiring people as something that, uh, that is very important, very precious. You're dealing with people's lives most people don't think about this, but you're going to spend more time at work than with your spouse, than with your friends. It, of your awake time, you're going to spend probably 80% of it at work. So you better enjoy it. You better like the people you're around, because if you don't, you're wasting your life. And thanks for that advice. And Dr. Bob, always telling stories, and that's why he's here. This is not love line or advice line. But stories always drive our lessons from Dr. Bob. And again, Bob is the founder of Cognex, the world's leader in machine vision systems. But that's not why he's here. It's his wisdom. It's his voice. It's, it's his compassion. And if you want to hear more life lessons from Dr. Bob, go to our website, OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and this next one is one of our favorites. 
And it's one of the quintessential American stories. Yet chances are, many of you have never even heard of this man's name. He had over 250 kills in World War II. He is America's most decorated soldier, having received every award, citation, and decoration the Army could give, including the Medal of Honor. All before he turned 20, though he looked 14. He became a movie star and wrote 17 songs which were recorded by guys like Dean Martin, Eddie Fisher, Porter Wagner, Jimmy Dean, and Charlie Pride. He wrote a best-selling autobiography and starred in its film adaptation, which became Universal Studios' highest-grossing film for 20 years, until Jaws broke its record in 1975. His grave is the second most visited at Arlington National Cemetery. JFK's is the first. Yet this 5'5", 110-pound baby-faced hero is practically unknown in America today, which is astonishing considering just 50-plus years ago, he received more fan mail than any other celebrity in Hollywood. To find out more about this American hero, let's take a listen to the man who wrote the book. Dr. David A. Smith is an American history professor at Baylor University in Waco, Texas. He wrote, The Price of Valor, The Life of Audie Murphy, America's Most Decorated Hero of World War II. I asked him, who is Audie Murphy? It's interesting because nobody else in American history combines these two sort of archetypal roles as he does. I mean, he's the most decorated soldier from the biggest war we've ever fought, and at the same time, or right after, he was a movie star at a time in Hollywood when movie stars had a cultural cachet that they would never have again. And one of the things that I find so fascinating about him is that he brings these roles together. He brings together the role of genuine hero and celebrity, and they don't match. They don't match at all. I mean, a hero is a very particular thing. A, a hero is an important cultural element within any culture. A hero is how we learn what virtue is. I mean, a hero is someone who, for a small amount of time, embodies a particular virtue. I mean, a virtue is an idea, and we have trouble you know, relating to it until we see it in the flesh. And that's what a hero is. And that's what he was first. Selflessness, determination, duty, patriotism, that whole bit. And then, gosh, then he becomes a movie star. And he hated being a movie star. He didn't like movie stars. His first wife, to whom he was married for just a year, wanted to be a movie star badly. And that's what she was in Hollywood for. And that's what drove them apart, because he hated Hollywood. He hated the phoniness of celebrity. And he, he disparaged his own talents. He refused to hang around other actors, mostly. When he was on the set, he would hang around with the horse wranglers and the stuntmen and the props guys. And it's fascinating to me that here, in this one person, you have extreme heroism, an extreme celebrity and it's just trying to mix 
and his story is a story of how we've confused them today. In mythology and legend, a hero is a man of divine ancestry who is endowed with great courage and strength, celebrated for his brave exploits and favored by the gods. In reality, Audi was all these things. But as to the part of ancestry, it was far from divine. Here's Joanne Mattern, author of Audie Murphy, Fact or Fiction. Audie Murphy was born on June 20th, 1925, and he was born in a little town called Kingston, Texas. His parents were sharecroppers, and um, that means that they uh, picked cotton in fields, but they didn't own the fields. The fields were owned by someone else. And in return for working, all they got was uh, a little shack to live in and a tiny little bit of the money that they earned. Everything else went to the owner of the field. The house they lived in was no more than a little shack. It had no running water, no bathrooms, no electricity. They had 12 children all together. And as soon as the kids were old enough, maybe four or five years old, they went to work in the cotton fields with their parents. Audie later said that he just worked and that it was a full-time job just existing. In fact, when Audie was born, his mother, Josie, couldn't take time off to take care of the baby, so she put him in a baby swing and took him out in the cotton fields with her. Audie's father, his name was Emmett, and Emmett, he was pretty lazy, more interested in, in gambling and having a good time. And the only time they got any meat to eat was if Audie and his brothers went out and hunted them. A neighbor once lent Audie his gun, and it had eight bullets in it. And Audie went hunting, came back with four rabbits and four bullets still left in the gun. That's how good a shot he was. Here's Audie's sister, Nadine Murphy. He got a little old 22. I don't know where, but he was really good at it. He could kill a rabbit on a run. Well, that's how we, that's how we lived, Dad. That's how we ate. He would go out and kill squirrels and rabbits. And uh, I guess we could say we're alive today because of him. He was my hero even then, before he ever did anything great. He was great to me then. Here again is Dr. Smith. One of the things that defines him throughout his entire life is his sense of duty to the people who are depending on him. He felt his duty toward his younger siblings in a profound way. Times were beginning to unfold that would shape his destiny forever. The country was in the throes of the Great Depression, and at one point things got so bad for the Murphys that they moved into a railroad boxcar. When he was 13 years old, his father left the family and he never came back. So now Audie had to step up and be the man of the house. And in order to do that, he had to quit school. So he never got farther than the fifth grade. But the person that was hardest hit in the family was his mother, Josie. And in 1941, she died of pneumonia. And he said her early death was not unusual in the story of a a sharecropper family, uh, particularly when the sharecropper himself runs off, leaving his wife to take care of their children. Anyway, so Audie was only 16. He had younger sisters and a brother to take care of, and he couldn't take care of them because he had to work. So they were sent to an orphanage. And then everything changed. Everything changed. Here's Murphy historian Michael West. Well, the time that the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, December 7th, I believe Audie Murphy and Monroe Hackney were actually on a double date at a movie theater. 
And after they returned from the movie theater, they learned, of course, of, of the bombing. Well, immediately, all the young men, or a number of the young men, chose to, to join. Well, that included Audie Murphy as well. Well, at that time, Audie was only about 17 and a half years old, plus he was plagued with that baby face. And immediately, uh, the recruiters recognized that he's too young. Uh, he tries the Marines. They virtually laugh him out. He uh, has visions of joining the paratroopers. Well, that, that never works out. So finally, he is uh, just simply run off, in essence, and he, he doesn't join. So Audie's older sister, Corinne, got him a false birth certificate that showed he was a year older than he was. So after he turned 18, as it said on his birth certificate, he was actually only 17, he went back and joined the Army, and he was accepted into the infantry. And what a story so far. I'd been a fan of the movie, but just didn't know. Just didn't know the circumstances, my goodness. Losing a father and a mother, and then having kids orphaned, living out of a boxcar. And when we come back, more from these great historians, more on this remarkable life, the life of Audie Murphy, here on Our American Stories. And if you get a chance, go to ouramericannetwork.org. We've done a couple of hundred hours now on this Days in Histories, on just pure stories, and particularly soldiers' stories. Arctic Winter's story from Band of Brothers, his life. You'll hear from him from the grave. When we come back, more on the life of Audie Murphy. This is Our American Stories. American Stories. We're listening to Wiley J. Smith's Ballad of Audie Murphy. And if you've never seen the movie To Hell and Back, it comes on TV all the time. Don't skip it. It's terrific. And it should be a remake. His life story should be a remake. 
So everybody today knows who he is. But let's go back to the story, back to Audie Murphy's life. The Army Infantry was the most accepting of recruits who appeared to possess the least amount of skills needed for combat. Audie Murphy attended two boot camps before seeing any action, and in both camps, the Army tried to protect the little recruit they nicknamed Baby. They tried to put him in their post office and then their kitchen, but Audie would have none of it. Nobody pushed him around. I mean, he, he was impressively tough from the very beginning. And he would literally push himself until he collapsed. The guys he met there at boot camp remembered that he was clearly in his element, even though he was small of stature, even though he was baby-faced. And uh, his superiors wanted to find some place for him that he might be a better fit, because honestly, he wasn't a good fit in the infantry until you got to know him. And he said, absolutely not. I want to be in the infantry. I want to march with this pack that's as big as I am, and I'm going to do it. And his superiors reluctantly let him stay, but they made a good decision. Audie was assigned to Company B, the 15th Infantry Regiment, 3rd Division. No one could know that this poor tenant farmer's son would one day help to cause the demise of Hitler's promised thousand-year Reich by performing such wondrous deeds in battle that they seemed almost mythological. Here's one of them. The first time he goes into combat with the 3rd Division is in the invasion of Sicily. And Laddie Tipton is a soldier in his company, and, and they are extremely close. Laddie has an estranged wife and a daughter and Audie Murphy, I don't know if I want to say envies him for this, but Audie Murphy realizes how special this is to have a wife and a daughter because he, you know, he doesn't have much in the way of family. And he talks to Laddie about his daughter all the time and says, you know, you're going to get back to see her, you're going to get back to her, you're going to be a great father. And then, you know, they come ashore in France together in August of 44. And they're fighting their way up this hill. He and Laddie, they're working their way up this hill in the face of a whole repeated series of German machine gun emplacements. And they, they get one German foxhole to surrender to them. And they, they wave a white flag. And Laddie says, okay, they're surrendering. We can go get them. And, and Audie says, no, 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 stay down. There are other people up there. And a German sniper from someplace else up on the hill hits Laddie in the head with a bullet. And he collapses right down into Audie's lap. And he sort of, I don't want to say goes nuts, but he grabs a gun and just charges up this hill in and out of draws and in and out of foxholes. And then he gets a German gun and goes after other foxholes. And he clears out that entire hillside. And everybody says, oh, that was the most courageous thing I had ever seen. And he says, that wasn't courage. That was just me being mad. And, you know, he goes back to Laddie to where his body is and, and he, he cries over him. It's just a, a heartbreaking scene, but it wins him his Distinguished Service Cross. The Distinguished Service Cross is the second highest military award after the Medal of Honor. And that was one of the only two moments in Audie's life he openly admitted to crying, the other being the death of his mother. Here's Dr. Smith with the heroic act that would earn Audie Murphy the Congressional Medal of Honor and the respect and love of the United States of America. 
The story of his Medal of Honor is probably the most impressive story that you may hear from World War II. He's in France. He's coming up to the German border. It's wintertime. There's snow on the ground. It's icy cold. And he's, he's leading a couple of tanks and a platoon of soldiers southward toward a town. And from the town toward him comes a company of German soldiers, maybe more, maybe of Italian, and, and two tanks. What he has with him are a couple of things that look like tanks, but they're called tank destroyers. They're faster and they're lighter than tanks, and they're meant to be able to shoot tanks and then get away. But both of those tank destroyers are knocked out of commission really early on in this firefight. And he realizes that without those tank destroyers to give his men cover, it's going to be incredibly hard for them to continue their push south across the snowy field. And he orders his men to start to fall back toward the forest. And he stays out at the front point of the position because he has a radio and he's calling in artillery from the rear. And he's telling, you know, where to drop the artillery rounds. And he was always very good at this, which serves him very well. And he realizes that if the Germans overrun this position that he has, they will go straight to the headquarters of his company and overrun their entire position. And then he realizes that over to his right, the tank that's been knocked out of commission and that the men inside are dead, he realizes that the 50 caliber gun up on the top of it, up on the turret, is still operable. And he climbs up on this tank and he, he trains the gun on the Germans coming across the field toward him. And the tank is burning, so it's producing a lot of smoke. And it masks his position. It gives him cover. It's like a smoke screen. And he, he swivels back and forth with this 50 caliber, shooting at these German soldiers that are coming across the field and getting really close. And he thought that the Germans had no idea where he was because they couldn't see him, number one, and they wouldn't even believe that somebody would be fool enough to be up on top of a burning tank shooting at them. Later he said, I remember being up on there and the thought I had was, this is the first time my feet have been warm for three months. And there's a story, and I think it's true, that you know he's up on this tank with his right hand on the gun, with his left hand holding the radio to his ear, yelling for artillery support. And across the radio comes the question, how close are they to your position? And his response is, if you'll just hold the line, I'll let you talk to one of them. It gets to the point where the shells coming in are kicking him around. They're hitting so close to him. And finally, finally they, they begin to pull back. And, and he realizes that the Germans are withdrawing. And he climbs down off this tank and he's shaking. And he walks over to a tree and he leans against the tree and he just slumps down to the ground. And right about that time, the tank he was standing on explodes. And it blows that turret, you know, way up into the air and off into the woods. And, and the people who watched this, the people who filled out the reports for him, the eyewitness reports for him to get the Medal of Honor, said they had never even seen anything like it. They couldn't believe it, and they saw it. They couldn't believe it, and they saw it. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, Audie Murphy's story, here on Our American Stories, the final segment of this remarkable life, this remarkable man. 
Though he was badly wounded, all he never left his gun. He killed 240 men and made the Germans run. And when the fight was over, the men all gathered round to shake the hand of the Texas man that backed the Germans down. sent for him when he heard what he had done gave him the highest honor our country has to give he said you didn't fight in vain as long as freedom lives shutters and boards cover the windows of the house where we Shutters and boards cover the windows of the house where we used to live. All I have left is a heart full of sorrow since she said she'd never forgive. The house that we built was once filled with laughter. But I changed that laughter to tears And now I live in a world without sunshine Oh, how I wish you were here And this is Our American Stories. You're listening to Dean Martin singing an original composition written by none other than Audie Murphy. Then let's return to the story of the most decorated soldier ever in American history. If you happen to end up in a foxhole with Audie Murphy, he was going to talk to you. And what you might hear is not what you'd think. A, little, a guy who's just scared to death all the time finds himself sitting in a foxhole with Audie Murphy. And Audie says to him, you know, don't be afraid to be scared. There's going to be times when you're scared to death. And then Audie tells this kid, I'm always scared when I'm at the front. And it's, it's, the irony is that everybody else in the division says, when we hear that Audie Murphy's in the front, the rest of us in the rear can go to sleep and sleep well. But Audie tells this kid, you know, there'll be times when you want to cry, and it's okay to cry. I mean, Audie transforms very much over the course of his time as a soldier from someone who has nothing but disdain, you know, sort of like Patton style, for people who can't take it and who break under combat to somebody who understands intimately how, how harrowing it is and what it can do to somebody. With attendance in the thousands, Murphy received his Medal of Honor in the Austrian city of Salzburg. Now this is in uh, May of 45. It's at an airfield just outside of Salzburg. He, he has this survivor's guilt already. Yes, he's He's a brave soldier, but the guys who were killed, and he's always going to say this, those are the ones who deserve the medals. Those are the ones who deserve the honor. When you see the photographs of him standing there, you think, this guy's just a kid. Well, he, he sort of is. Thanks to Life magazine putting Audie on its cover, he returned an American hero. I asked Dr. Smith to put into context what it meant to grace the cover of Life magazine in the 1940s. 
there's nothing today, and, and I think about this sometimes, I, I can't think of anything today that is analogous to Life magazine in 1945. There's nothing that has the cultural centrality. There's nothing that in one magazine, in one photograph, can make you a national icon. But Life magazine was like that. But it's this cover, and it shows him looking like a high school football quarterback in a military uniform. He's evidently young. He looks, and I think this is important, he looks completely unscarred by his past. He looks as fresh-faced as if he was fresh out of high school, and of course he's not. And you, you can't tell at all by looking that this guy killed you know, 250 soldiers. This guy was shot repeatedly. This guy was 50% disabled, according to the U.S. Army. And, and this guy's carrying around, already carrying around some, some terrible emotional baggage that's keeping him from sleeping at night. But there he is on the cover of Life magazine, looking like a Norman Rockwell figure come to life. One of Hollywood's biggest movie stars saw Audie Murphy on the cover of Life magazine and picked up the phone. Here again is Joanne Mattern. There was a famous actor named Jimmy Cagney, and Jimmy Cagney saw all the press about Audie, saw his picture, and said, hey, this guy should be in the movies. So he invited Audie to come to Hollywood and try to be a movie star. And Audie even lived with him for a while. But his acting career didn't really take off, so he ended up sleeping in a gym that a friend of his owned and kind of bounced around a little bit. But then in 1949, he wrote a book called To Hell and Back. And that was all about his experiences in the war. To Hell and Back was a huge bestseller, and Universal Studios decided to make it into a movie, and they wanted Audie to star as himself. And Audie said no. He said, I don't want the public to think I'm trying to be famous by, by saying, look at me, I'm a war hero. But eventually he changed his mind because he felt that he could show how brave all the soldiers were who, who had fought and who had died and kind of do a tribute to them through the movie. And he also wanted to make sure the movie was as realistic as possible. And starring in it meant that he could have some say in how the battles were staged and the uniforms and how the actors behaved as the soldiers. So he ended up doing it. The movie came out in 1955. It was a huge hit. It was actually Universal Studios' highest earning movie until 1975 when the movie Jaws came out. He went on and did some movies and some television after that, but that was really the high point. Although Audie's high point was very public, Audie's low point was more private. But while this, all this was going on off screen, Audie, it was very difficult for him. Nowadays, we would understand that he had post-traumatic stress disorder from his time in battle, but during the 50s and the 60s, that term didn't exist yet, and people weren't really aware of it. So Audie actually, in the 60s, he started to speak out about how he felt that, you know, he had trouble sleeping. Every time he heard a loud noise, he would jump. He slept with a gun under his pillow. When he went out in public, when he was driving down the road, he was constantly looking for danger, you know, looking for something to jump out at him. And he said to be trained to kill and then come back into civilian life and be alone in a crowd, it takes an awful long time to get over it. He never really did get over it, but he tried to help others through his experiences. Here's Audie's friend, film director, Bud Bedeker, on Audie's struggle with PTSD. He called me one day 
And he said, uh, I'm sitting here with my 45. The picture's in good shape. Don't worry about a thing. I'm going to blow my brains out. And I had two seconds. And I said, that's really great. He said, what do you mean? I said, why don't you do that? He said, well, what do you mean? I said, do it for every kid in the country who thinks you're the greatest fellow who ever lived. That'll make everybody in the United States. Go ahead and pull the trigger. He said, you son of a bitch, and he hung up. Audie's life clearly defined who he was and what he stood for. His death was no different. In 1971, Audie Murphy was flying on a small plane, and the plane crashed, and he was killed. He was 45 years old. And because he was a war veteran and a hero, he was buried at Arlington National Cemetery with full military honors. And generally, if you are a Medal of Honor winner, your gravestone at Arlington, the lettering is done in gold trim. It's very sparkly. It's very eye-catching. And Audie didn't want that. He just has a plain gravestone, and it just lists his name. It's very plain, very brief. doesn't really give any indication of what a hero he was. And he's the second most visited grave at Arlington Cemetery, the first one being President John Kennedy's grave is the most popular, and Audie's number two. American news anchor Tom Brokaw wrote the introduction for Murphy's autobiography to Helen Back. Here's how he concludes. I was first aware of Murphy as a war hero. He was on the cover of Life magazine when I was a youngster. Not long before his untimely death in an airplane accident, I was working in California when Audie Murphy came back into the news. A woman friend of his had sent her dog to a trainer and she wasn't happy with the results. As I recall, she asked Audie to intervene. He visited the dog trainer who then complained to the police that Murphy had shot at him. The local police brought Murphy in for questioning and when Murphy was released without charges, a large number of reporters were outside the police station. Murphy agreed to take a few questions. One of the reporters asked, Audie, did you shoot at the guy? Audie Murphy, the most decorated combat veteran of World War II, stared at his interrogator for a moment and then said in that familiar Texas voice, If I had, you think I would have missed? I love that moment and all that Audie Murphy stood for as a citizen, a soldier, and a hero, Tom Brokaw. This is Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job on that, Greg. And again, 250 confirmed kills. One man, humble beginnings, humble in birth, and humble in death. If you've never been to Arlington, by the way, Arlington National Cemetery, you must go, you must take the family as solemn, as beautiful a place as you'll ever see amidst this busy city, there's just this space. And boy, no one talks, and no one laughs, and no one's goofing off. You watch kids put the phones away. You watch human beings just respect, respect the sacrifices made. And there is Audie Murphy's gravestone. I've seen it. I've been in front of it. And it's just, it's nothing. I mean, it's just like everyone else's. And it was a remarkable thing to not have that special lettering there. Many Medal of Honor winners choose it. And Murphy just didn't want to be different than the rest of the guys. And, well, he's received every award, every citation, including the Medal of Honor, all before, again, he turned 20 years old. The baby. 
He looked 14, they said over and over again. Remember also that he wrote 17 songs. Dean Martin, Eddie Fisher, Porter Wagoner, Jimmy Dean, Charlie Pride. And we're going to bump out with this Jerry Wallace cover of Audie Murphy's When the Wind Blows in Chicago. This is Lee Habib, Audie Murphy's story, here on Our American Story. Oh, why won't it let me forget? 